a woman can be funny. And if a woman is funny, guess what? She's not pretty. Like that's impossible, right? So there was a lot of that working against her. Leela being a woman, uh, not clouded by such judgments, um, saw, you know, Lucy basically how, how animated she was when she told stories. She saw her, you know, almost elastic face and that that potential to, you know, have her have her have humorous roles as well. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Comedians whose comedy made history. I talk with Professor Lisa Steinhaven about Charlie Chaplin at First National, and Sarah Royal about Lucille Ball at RKO, MGM, and CBS. Plus, silent film accompanist Johnny Best about bringing silence to the north of England. Oh, Lucy, I told you to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio and leave a rating and a review at the Apple Podcasts. Gracias. How do you get silent films and live musicians to audiences in new parts of the country? Any country. The Yorkshire Silent Film Festival started in 2016, bringing silence with live musical accompaniment to Yorkshire in the north of England. Now renamed Northern Silence, the festival has a unique model for bringing silence and music to people all over the north of Great Britain. Musician and festival director Johnny Best started Northern Silence, which will run in different towns around the region throughout the month of October. I spoke with Johnny Best from Holmfirth, West Yorkshire. Maybe the first thing to start with is just uh, tell me a bit about culture in the north. I think, uh, you know, people, people in other countries, you know, are aware of one band from Liverpool and maybe that's it. Well, um, the north of England is a, uh, is a huge area. South Yorkshire, Sheffield, through Lancashire, Yorkshire, Cumbria, uh, Northumbria, all the way up to the to the borders of Scotland. So, um, and the county I'm in, I'm, I'm in West Yorkshire, uh, and Yorkshire is the biggest county in, in the United Kingdom. So um, it's a big, big area. Um, there's quite a, there's a thing we refer to as the North-South divide. I don't know if you have that kind of thing in the, in the oh, States, yeah. but the, <laughs> yeah, it's quite politicized and, and powerful at the moment. On the negative side, the North's, uh, the North was very much in the, in, uh, in the, um, you know, mid to late 19th century and the first half of the 20th century defined by its industry. I mean, it was the industrial powerhouse of, of the country. Um, you know, Manchester, uh, the great cities, you know, were sort of built on, uh, on, on the cotton industry to begin with. And, and where I live in West Yorkshire, it's a, it's a mill, um, uh, a mill area, cotton mill area, um, and, um, textiles industry, um, all of which, you know, vanished, uh, after the second world war, really. Um, so, um, industrial decline is the, is the, is the negative side of it. I'm from the North. I moved back to the North, um, after, 
um, 15 years in London. Um, and um, culture up here is um, is highly varied. Uh, you know, there's a, a number of uh, great symphony orchestras, very busy, you know, all kinds of different music, obviously pop music um, in the north. You mentioned Liverpool, but Manchester, uh, Manchester has a huge uh, music scene, um, was the center of the, you know, the, 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 the British music scene and clubbing scene in the 90s. Leeds has a big music scene, so does Sheffield. You know, there's, um, these are big music cities. They really are. Yeah, I did. I did see twenty-four hour party people many years ago, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I know a little. Yeah, um, but we've you know, there's also you know, there's there's theaters. We've got um, you know, we've got opera companies. We've we've got cinemas. We've got there's loads of culture up in the north. I suppose up here we we do slightly resent the the assumption that that Londoners have that that everything good is in London, and there is a lot of good stuff in London. Uh, you know, we've got some incredible stuff in Manchester. We've got, you know, the um, the International Festival there, which is one of the world's great um, contemporary art festivals. Um, uh, and we've got, you know, wonderful landscapes up here as well, which which are an important part of 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 the cultural life. Um, you know, the great orchestras. I mean, Manchester has the Halle. Uh, there's the BBC Philharmonic. Uh, we need a you know, we need a concert hall or two more. Sheffield needs a concert hall. You know, there's yeah, we got a shopping list. But um, uh, no, I've 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 been um, I've been very happy back up here in the north. Very very happy. Um, and uh, uh, I think what's lovely is it when you when you when you lead a sort of when you have an artistic career and you're you're making stuff and producing stuff. There's a lot of there is space up in the north. Manchester, uh, London is a very 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 busy city. Loads of stuff happening. Um, but um, but there's space up here to do all kinds of things, um, and I've 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 enjoyed that very much being back up here for the last fifteen years, twenty years, really. So, so you had uh, film culture, I guess, in in Yorkshire. That's how the festival started, uh, but now it's kind of a it's around in quite a number of places in the north. Is that yeah? I mean, yeah. It um it started really because um I mean I. I'm a musician. I began my career as a musician working in theatre um, uh, in London, mostly. Well, I trained in Manchester. Um, and um, uh, after um, sort of was years working in theatre and opera and in orchestral music, uh, mostly in London. When I moved up here, I, um, I was looking for a new challenge. I was I'd been running arts festivals. I'd um, uh, I'd been, you know, producing and administrating stuff and I you know I'd been I'd gone from being a performer to working in arts management and I was fed up and looking for a new challenge um, and I happened to encounter Neil Brand I have I booked him for a festival I was producing and um, it was the first time I'd I'd experienced live scored silent film um, he um, I booked him to accompany um, the first part of um, Fritz Lang's uh, Die Nibelungen and um, and it was a revelatory experience. It's about it's about eleven years ago now, and so um, that's what got me into it. And shortly afterwards, um, uh, I um, I founded a a, um, a series of screenings in the little little village where I live, which is which is Home Firth in West Yorkshire, which is in between Sheffield, Leeds, and Manchester. And that that sort of rural screening program grew into. Yorkshire Silent Film Festival and then, you know, grew further into what we have today, you know, 10 years later, which is Northern Silence, which is sort of 
spreading its uh, <laughs> its tentacles across yeah. the across <laughs> the north beyond Yorkshire. Um, but yeah, it was um, it, it came initially from from me being struck by the experience as an audience member of of um, of that Fritz Lang film and Neil's improvisation, and then my own uh, conviction that this was something I should explore myself as a musician. I'd been an improvising musician since I was a teenager, you know, um, uh, and as a church organist and working theatre productions, working with singers. I, I was a um, I was a pianist on West End musicals. I was a musical director of West End musicals. I was, you know, and then I went into opera as a as a director, you know. So I've always been working with and did more musical theatre. I was always I was always working with dramatic music, with music somehow in service of a story and characters and human emotion. And so this whole world of silent films seemed to open up something both fresh and new, but also just seemed like another step from all of the things I'd been spending my time with for 25 years. So it was a, it, um, it all grew from that. It all grew from that. What does your audience respond to? Are they pretty open to whatever you have or they kind of lean toward comedy or something like that? Well, it, it depends where we are. Um, over the year, our, our, our programming varies quite a lot. Some of our venues, the audience is particularly into sort of European classics. They want something um, dramatically meaty that they can, um, you know, really, really get into. Um, when we're working in venues where the audience is less experienced with with silent film, um, certainly if we're aiming at a more general family audience, then we lean towards comedy. Um, but, um, you know, it, it varies a lot, but the audiences are different in different places and the audience expectation uh, where the audience is depends to some extent on the kind of venue it is. So, you know, we work in um, in theatres, in uh, in old silent era cinemas. We work in, in music venues, uh, concert spaces, um, in community venues. You know, so it depends how, you know, it depends getting the audience... Um, interested via familiar, familiar um, stuff, you know, and sure. then taking them on a journey. You know, it takes time, um, and quite a, you know, quite a number of our venues we've been working with now for five, six years, and um, you know, and have spent time developing that audience. So, um, you know, it's um, it's 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 always very particular to to the place um, and to the uh, yeah the actual demographic. Of, of the audience it is i mean i would say it's it's you know it's programming takes a lot of thought because we we don't we are not as a rule working with um with the sort of expert audience that you would find at Pordenone or san francisco sure we're working you know we are um one of the reasons that i began um producing life's called silent film is that they're really i said i was interested in it and there's very very little of it about you know there's there's a bit in london but not much um uh, the um, uh, the Kennington Bioscope is the main offer in London, um, and um, you know there's slapstick in Bristol, there's um, and there's the wonderful Hip Fest uh, up in Bowness, but in between Bristol and Bowness there is very very little, very very little indeed, and that's you know that's um, that's seventy percent of the, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> right, the, you know, so there's a lot of space. So there was uh, when I when I mean there was space, I mean there was a. Um, there was a lot of opportunity to be knocking on the doors of venues and saying, do you fancy giving this a try? And um, gradually building up this community of venues across the region um, who are each sort of taking their 
their audience on a journey into into silent film with live music you know with us you know over 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 multiple years so it's um yeah yeah no i noticed you have so you have a lot of buster keaton celebrating his hundredth uh yeah i don't know what is it the hundredth i guess his career <laughs> making yeah it's the shift from shorts to to from the final short to three ages isn't it it's right the, yeah. Uh, yeah i mean the the festival is um is a distinct thing because we we produce throughout the year and what we do between sort of spring spring and summer between sort of march and july is um we do a season of things all over the place you know some we do some of our large-scale commissions, our programming with our regular venues. So this year we did our brass band and archive film project with Neil Brand. We were touring that around. Um, but um, then the festival um, in October is open access and uncurated. So every venue that wants, uh, you know, any venue can take part. Um, and we don't control what they do as long as they do silent film with live score so it is a, a very different model of festival it's not a programmed i mean some of some of the events are, are events that i've programmed but many of them are not so it is so it reflects the enthusiasm of particular venues some of which are trying silent film for the first time so so it's a very different kind of festival from um from the ones you might be you know more familiar with um it's um it's an open access uncurated event that is uh which we intend which we hope over over time will will foster more and more enthusiasm for experimenting with live scored film and we uh, you know we we expect the festival to grow each year and 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 venues to explore options beyond um you know uh you know the laurel and hardy and the bus keaton um it's uh yeah but it's it's not a curated festival well that yeah that's interesting um so, I mean, if, if somebody's doing it for the first time, do you kind of give them some guidance on what, you know, what ought to work for their audience? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. Um, we are, um, we're working with community film organizations as well as professional venues to, um, uh, to, to assist and advise and to, uh, and to encourage if, if the festival is successful, what I, you know, uh, the, the, the the sort of mark of success uh, two or three years from now will be that we've seen a um, uh, a growth in um, in interest and activity in terms of programming live scored silent film, and we're seeing venues and presenters um, and film clubs um, explore a wider range of of, of films um, and um, and bring in, you know, and 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 work with a, a an increasingly varied range of of musical talent you know it's um so it's it's a sort of um planting seeds and tending them and fostering sure. a cult that's what the festival is about rather than presenting a curated package of stuff that i've that i've shaped whereas the our march to july season and the commissions you do and all of that that's a that's a programmed shaped season that we we assemble very carefully and then the festival is a big old free-for-all <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a very it's a very distinct ethos uh which is not not about you know not really about ourselves it's not really about northern silence it's 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 about sort of feeding the culture and 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 fostering enthusiasm and 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 helping helping others to 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 get involved and explore it themselves now one thing i i was noticing on the program that i thought was interesting um was the film would you believe it directed by walter ford 
Uh, yeah. One of those names, I mean, he came to Hollywood, and I think people know, vaguely know a few things that he did, like Rome Express and Saloon Bar, oddly enough, was a subject of conversation at Nitrateville some time back. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, tell me about, uh, I guess, that's starring him? Is that him? In yeah, the... it is. Yeah. It's okay. starring him. He directed it. It's one of... Um... I think it's a package of three films he made for this. Um, uh, what, what are they called? Are they called Nettleton? Um, I can't remember the name, the name of the studio, but I think it was. I think he signed a deal for three films. Um, uh, I was just doing a little bit of um, delving into the archive. Just, uh, just <laughs> look. I first came across this film because when I when I uh, was putting together a program for Leeds Film Festival, um, I I called up. Um, uh, Bryony Dixon, the, the silent film curator at the BFI, and asked for her advice on British silence. And she very generously um, sort of took me through her list of what she thought were the were the gems in the in the archive. And this was one of them. And I loved the sound of it. So I programmed it um, uh, about eight years ago, eight, nine years ago. Um, and I just loved it. It's a wonderful film. It's 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 very funny. It's got um, it's beautifully structured and shaped and it's slightly nuts um, and quirky, and and it uh, and it has the most tremendous finale to it. Uh, so um, I I wanted to do it again. Um, I thought it was quite, and I've I've forgotten I've forgotten all the detail. I just remember the fun of it. I remember sure. I remember the audience response, and the the finale with the tank is just um, is delightful. There's a wonderful scene on the underground as well, on the London underground. So um, and it, and there's a there's a there's a nice 35 mil print in the um, in the BFI National Archive. Uh, so we're showing it on October the 1st. And then I believe, if this isn't letting a rabbit out of the hat, it's going to Pordenone, which is coincidental. Oh. <laughs> um, but it's actually so the, I will get I think, to see it. I think I may have broken an embargo there. I don't know if it's been announced. But okay. I've, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're packing the print up and sending it straight up back to the BFI. And it's going over to, um, to Pordenone. So you'll be able to see it if you're heading that direction. It's uh, it's it's well worth it. It's uh, it is a it is a gem, a real gem. I don't know. Are there other British films on the program? Um, th- there aren't actually. I don't think there are. Um, we got um, it's uh, it is the the events that we're producing are um, it's a, it's a it's a smaller selection than we than we would usually produce. Partly because we're we wanted to have the we're a, we're a very small number of, of freelancers who work on on this on Northern Silence, and we wanted to make sure. We weren't producing too much because we wanted to be able to support the, the new venues that are getting involved, you see. So, um, no, we've um, I mean, we have shown uh, all kinds of things from the from the um, from the BFI archive. Um, and I do I do want to um, we're planning a, um, a series of 35 mil screenings uh, for spring, summer next year. Um, and I I'd like a British silent film to feature um uh, significantly in there there are um there's some great titles in the archive um that don't get seen very much at all now i see also i mean there's a number of you know sort of gilt-edged classics we've got uh, cabinet of dr caligari uh yeah. there's uh elita queen of mars and then of course on halloween what else nosferatu <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, um, I mean, these are uh, Nosferatu and Caligari. These are the films that the venues wanted to do. And they're very, um, they're good titles to, um, uh, to engage um, an audience that, you know, a non-specialist audience and start to develop the, the you know, a habit of, 
of um, and an enjoyment of life scored film. Um, in the case of Caligari, uh, it's also the case that, that we we sometimes program films. Well, we program films. I, I program films with with particular musicians in mind, and sometimes a film will be programmed as much because it offers musicians something interesting to work with, as because sure. it's film value. So we are um, we we do uh, we treat the music as uh, equally important as as the films, um, and uh, sort of position our musicians a little a little differently compared to 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 other festivals so um caligari's in there because it's um there's a particular case for musicians who are doing it in leeds to 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 get involved with it it's a great film for musicians that um elita we um we we work we work in a an old um an old nuts and bolts factory in uh, sheffield which is now a um a complex of music studios um and we uh, we started programming there last year um, and there's a very, there's quite a young, uh, a young hip audience that, um, are into all sort of films with a sort of underground or sort of countercultural vibe. So they, they, they flocked to Haksan last year. Oh. Um, <laughs> so we're giving them Elita, Elita this year. Right. Uh, it's going very well, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm always, uh, we're always thinking where can this or that musician or this or that ensemble, you know, we, we go next, what would be an interesting next step? for them and we are um uh we we do spend quite a bit of our time and resources um creating um learning opportunities for musicians we run um residential weekends for for um for improvisers um sort of intermediate and advanced levels there's a number of musicians who've done their very first um scoring of silent films uh with us and who are then learning by by working in with in a sort of mentored relationship with us and and performing, so we are we do a lot to to develop the, the skills around improvised mm. um, scoring of silent films, working solo and in ensembles, and that's very much a part of of our, of our sort of of the festival and our annual program. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, the page that's you know meet the improvising musicians. <laughs> And, you know, I know Neil Brand, of course, and saw John Sweeney last year at Pordenone. Um, but otherwise, the names were not familiar to me. And judging by the instruments, I, I have a feeling a lot of these people play together. So you put put together a little yeah. ensemble for a particular movie. Yeah. Sorry about the dog barking. Uh, we right. um, We've got I've got two dogs and we've got a third with us today and he's very vocal now rufus stop it <laughs> not stop the it. not the first dog to be heard on this <laughs> podcast believe me yeah um yeah i mean firstly uh i my job is to develop musical talent and create opportunities for musicians in the north rather than ship up musicians from london um you know and that's very much um it's very much a part of being you know working in culture in the in the north you know we want to we want things to grow and develop here rather than just you know be buying in from london um having said that neil's worked with us from the very beginning um we've presented um three orchestral premieres um of his his works we premiered the lodger um uh, uh the orchestral lodger and um oliver twist and then echoes of the north the brass band project and he we're working on a new a new commission for 2024 with him. Uh, John came up for the first time last year, John Sweeney, to um, to run a masterclass. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, we're I'm working with a um, little stable of of 
pianists who are who are learning the craft and then music all kinds of musicians folk and jazz players experimental players um uh sort of uh, contemporary classical you know all different kinds of musicians so it's quite deliberate that that yes it's a very it's a very different culture musical culture around the festival compared to you know um the um the bfi um and um and hip fest you know i mean we're not um it's my job to to um to expand, uh, ex- expand the pool of players and uh, to create opportunities for, for new musicians to, to get involved and to learn and to develop. Um, and that's, um, yeah, that's, that's a big part of, and obviously, you know, as I'm a musician, that's a, that's a big part of what I feel is, is important. Because um, it is quite a closed, it's a bit cliquey and closed shop silent film. I mean, yeah. I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had, but you shouldn't have to, it shouldn't have to be down to the luck of whether you meet someone you know, there need to be opportunities for musicians, you know, clear opportunities for musicians to, to learn and to experiment. You know, it, um, it shouldn't be the, the sort of cliquey closed shop that it does tend to be. So, yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's important to me to be doing what we do. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, some of our I'm quite proud of some of the things we've achieved. I mean, Utsaf Lal, who you may know from San Francisco, Utsaf did his first silent film playing uh, with us. Um, uh, you know, I, I approached him and asked him if he wanted to, to try it and, um, and he'll be back. He's been back since and he'll be back next year for a little tour with us. Uh, he went on to San Francisco to do Shiraz and and then various other things this year, but he began with us. Um, and for me that, that the fact that we're a, a very small freelance based organization that fosters talent, um, and that will invest in, in, in musicians learning over an extended time period rather than just booking them to perform when they're already fully you know fully cooked <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so it's it's a sort of it's a sort of politics really that that matters yeah. that matters to us, you know so what uh anything in particular that you're playing for that you're looking forward to um i i'm really looking forward i'm really looking you know i'm really looking forward to three ages um because i um I was taking another look at it just the other day, and I, I just, I think it's underrated, and I, and I, I found it absolutely charming. I'm really looking forward to it, but I, I really want to get, um, I do want to, to, to encounter, uh, would you believe it again, the, uh, the Walter Ford. I, because uh, I'm, it's as I say, it's about eight years since I've right. seen it, um, and so I'm, I'm fascinated to be, to be with it again. I'm also starting a partnership with, um, uh, with a wonderful. Uh, um, harmonica and accordion player called Will Pound, who's a rising star of the of the folk scene here in um, in uh, Britain, and he and I are are um, playing Buster Keaton's The General and um, the Great. Are we doing the Great Train Robbery uh, and um, a trio of Buster Keaton shorts? And he's a wonderful musician. I'm really looking forward to our sort of improvisational experiment uh, with with Buster Keaton that we're doing in Morecambe and York. So that's going to be interesting.
That was music by Neil Brand, performed by the Brighouse and Rastrick Band, for a compilation film of scenes of silent air life in the North, called Echoes of the North, presented in July in Manchester. The Northern Silence Festival is running now. A link for the festival's screenings will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Charlie Chaplin started his film career at Keystone in 1913, but seen today, the films, possessed of an anarchic energy, can seem chaotic and crude. His artistry improved rapidly at SNA and even more so at Mutual, with films that blended pathos with comedy and made his tramp persona a symbol of universal humanity in short films like The Tramp, The Immigrant, and Easy Street. His next stop in 1917 was the newly formed First National Studio, but it was two steps forward, one step back on his way to a masterpiece that would change what film comedy was, 1921's The Kid. That's the story that Lisa Steinhaven tells in her new book, The Early Years of Charlie Chaplin, Final Shorts and First Features, from White Owl Books, based in, interestingly enough, South Yorkshire. Nitrateville Radio last spoke with Professor Steinhaven, who teaches English at Ohio University Zanesville, about Max Linder in 2021. When I saw Richard Attenborough's Chaplin film with Robert Downey Jr., you know, my thought was maybe instead of covering 80 years of his life, it might have been better to kind of focus on, you know, a slice, say, from the early teens to, you know, when he was poor and and a nobody to becoming arguably the most famous person on earth. So that's basically what you did here. You chose the first national period out of his whole career and focused on that. So, So why'd you do that? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, I think it was the only such period that had not been um, focused on in a separate book. Uh, So Michael Hayde has his book on the mutuals. Um, There's a gentleman in France that has done all of the Keystone films, you know. Um, And so this particular period seemed to be left out. And I thought it was a really important one because really it's the jumping off point for the very, very popular features that we get. Sure. Um, you know, with United Artists. So I really, and I also have always been interested in that goofy uh, Third Liberty Loan tour, and I wanted to know more about that. Um, so uh, it just seemed like a good time to focus on. It's interesting to me in that, I mean, his career is pretty golden before that. It just seems to go higher and higher. Um, right. The first national period, I mean, although it certainly hits high points like the kid in particular, but it also is kind of when his life goes off the rails a bit. I mean, right. a fairly di- mm-hmm. uh, disastrous marriage. The the uh, situation with first national doesn't seem to make anybody very happy most of the time. Well, the period starts really high. I mean, he's, you know, just signed this incredible contract and... Um, after that, he builds a studio that wasn't really in the cards initially. 
because they were thinking of renting a studio and then they were going to uh, refurbish the Lone Star studio and keep renting it. And then all of a sudden they just decide to try to build one. And Charlie wasn't even in town when the announcement was made. He was in Honolulu or something. Um, and uh, by January, he's got, you know, three quarters of a studio ready to go. Um, you can see in the in the film with Harry Louder on set that it's not quite finished, but it's almost there. Um, so it doesn't take him any time at all to put it up. So that's that's where he starts, and it seems to be a really, really high point. And in fact, his first uh, two films are, are quite big films for him. Um, they're both a little bit longer than what he's been doing, and um, both of them just were smashes at the box office. Uh, and then after that, that we're, I'm talking A Dog's Life and Shoulder Arms. And then after that is when he marries Mildred and things start to fall. I mean, he's he's losing his way um, for whatever reason. I, I don't want to blame Mildred because I don't think it's her fault. I just think it's something that every creative person goes through once in a while. This is really Chaplin's first creative block that he has. I don't know if he's like come to the end of all the gags in essence, or he's just going through a dry period um, because he does eventually come out with the kid at the end. Um, but right now he's going to have a couple of dogs coming through, you know, Sunnyside uh, at Dave's pleasure is my all time favorite dog. Um, <laughs> and, and we go from there, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, First National would just be happy to have, you know, 10 more easy streets or whatever, or eight, I guess that's the, right. the contract. Um, but right. he is straining at wanting to take on bigger subjects. I mean, World War One is certainly a bigger subject in shoulder arms. And, and to us right. now, a dog's life looks like a dry run for the kid. Um, which yeah. of course it wouldn't have to people then, but still it feels like he's sort of pressing against the limitations of the two real comedy format and really wants to do more serious things, more substantial things. Absolutely. And what, what is first nationals reaction to all this? Well, I, I think they're so happy with the first two that when the third one and the fourth one kind of go awry, they're not too worried yet. Um, but then after that, they know that, um, Chaplin is working on something longer and it's, it's becoming a sort of a thorn in their side really, because a, they don't want to pay for a longer film. You know, this is a contract for shorts. It's not a contract for features. And, um, B, they know that he's spending all this time on, on the kid and he's not doing, he's not fulfilling his contract. I think I say one place in the book that uh, he's, he's making the least amount of money of his entire career at this point because he's not finishing anything, you know. Right, he has right. to finish something to get paid. And, you know, all through 1919 into 1920, he's got very little uh, cash coming in. Um, so, so even with the $200,000 uh, advance that he got, you know, that's not going to last forever. Um, so... Well, I assume a lot of that went went to the studio in any building the studio. Yeah, right, right, exactly. It's not making First National happy. They send out um, the big guys to to visit the studio. I think I included a photo in the book of everybody arriving. That's a combination of bigwigs and theater owners and things like that, all of whom are 
First National members to try to see what's going on, you know. And that's that's only one visit. That particular visit was basically a photo op uh, to to not only quell the concerns of First National, but also of the press and also of Chaplin's public, that things were actually um, being worked on. You know, there was a light at the end of the tunnel, basically. <laughs> Tell me about First National. I mean, they... They were a new studio with, I don't know, kind of a different model, it seemed like, in terms of how they worked with, you know, with exhibitors. Obviously, hiring Chaplin was kind of swinging for the fences. We're a big deal because look who we have. So, And, and that's why, um, you know, the First National Brass was okay with signing Chaplin with such a, for such a big amount. Because if you think of it, I mean, what I was able to find out about First National was that they were just born when they offered him a contract and they had only purchased one film from it, from SNA as part of their um, stable of entertainment that they were going to foist on the, on the country. And so they were really at the very beginning. They had no idea if this was going to work out or any of that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm not a business person, but what I understand about it is that this is a group of theater owners um, that's different already. Right. And we're talking hundreds, hundreds of them. They do have a board of directors, you know, Roth Apfel and J.D. Williams, Thomas Talley, not Thomas Talley, um, Talley is his last name. I can't remember his first name. Um, and a bunch of others. But they were supposedly kicking out the middleman. So in jetting the, the guy in the middle who was, moving between the production people, the people who were creating the films and the people who were distributing the films, they were going to be saving a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, oddly, it's kind of similar to with what Chaplin and the other members of United Artists start out or you set out to do. I mean, it's kind of United right. Exhibitors in a sense. Right. Okay. So, you know, so they're, they're all going through this thing of Chaplin's productivity seems to have, fallen way down versus, I mean, he just cranked him out at each of his previous studios. Um, and then we right. get into his marriage to Mildred Harris, who I think, you know, in some ways is like the least known of his four wives to people later on. I don't know. T tell me about that relationship. Well, I, I think Chaplin may have been at a point in his life where he thought that was the next step. Um, He's he's just built his own studio. He's got this huge contract that he just signed. What is there? Who do I go home to? I go home to the Los Angeles Athletic Club. I've been going there since 1914. <laughs> it's, you know, a two-room suite. You know, they they take my laundry out to do it. You know, it's not like a home or anything. Um, it, w it was that next frontier in a way. So he meets Mildred at a party at Sam Goldwyn's house in the summer of 1919, I think it was. And she was his type. I mean, his type is blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, petite, you know. Right. That's really all she needed, to be frank. And quite young. No, uh, quite young, yes, thank you. And not an Einstein individual, you know. He's <laughs> not a not an intellect of any kind. And that may or may not have initially made her more attractive. I'm not sure. Um but that was it. I mean, you know, I'm sure Chaplin had his, whatever woman he wanted at that point in his life, but um, he chose Mildred. 
she was in the business. She was not a huge star. Um, there may have been some prompting from other folks. Who knows? Um, but <laughs> one thing led to the other, and they got married in October of that year. And then Mildred got pregnant, and I mean, it, whatever the state of their marriage was, uh, it was not helped by the unfortunate result, which was they had a child who was deformed and died pretty quickly. I think three days or something like that. Right. I don't know. Was that kind of that was like the end of their their marriage, basically? I think so. But but you know, originally uh, she said she was pregnant before they got married, and that particular child never appeared. So whether it was a fiction or she lost it, it's not sure. Um, but this was the second pregnancy, supposedly. And so, um, you know, <laughs> I hate to compare him to Henry VIII, but the two times you're out, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there was no point in going on with it at that point, yeah. But he wanted to cheapskate out on any kind of, uh, you know, uh, divorce for her. And she fought him tooth and nail on that for quite a while. And I think she ended up getting $25,000, which is ridiculously small amount. Right. But anyway. I mean, a relative <laughs> fortune in those days, but, but relative to his right. fortune, not that much. Yeah. That's uh, right. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's all those things. I mean, you know, the stories of him disappearing. I mean, it's, it's the negative of the kid that he like hightails it over the California Nevada border or something like that, mm -hmm. um, right? To prevent her from seizing it or anything like that. He had also started working for First National at that point. So the First National guys were, she was on the the uh, their salary now. So. You know, they were kind of working behind the scenes with that whole thing, with trying to steal the kid and all that stuff. So there was that, too. So they they were trying to get it just because they thought he'd never finish it or what? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah. Did he, he <laughs> or he'd sell it, it to someone else, which he did try to do. Yeah. Now, I mean, how could he even have done that? That seems like, you know, a, a short route to court. To, to yeah, do I don't understand that either. He tried starting to do that with the uh, shoulder arms. He was supposed he had two offers of four hundred plus thousand dollars from different studios for it. But um, I, I guess the contract was such that you know uh, he just needed to produce eight shorts, and anything over that he could, you know, <laughs> he could pick and choose to sell to someone else. I that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. He was also coming off of taking a lot of criticism for not being in the British Army in World War One, because that's what they needed, right. you know, another guy in the trenches. And that led to right. his Liberty Bond tours, which were exhausting for him. It tested Chaplin personally and physically. I mean, he'd never had to work so hard in his whole life. We're talking about a single day he might spend. Uh, I think I offer this example in the book, like in, uh, I think it was um, New Orleans. They had something planned almost every hour of the day for him, and he ended up canceling out on most of that. But, you know, some places he was actually doing that sort of level of um, activity for the Liberty Loan Tour. And he's not a guy who likes to be on all the time. Right. You know, uh, he, he's an introvert for the most part. And I can't even imagine him going through two days doing that forget about two or three weeks or however long the tour was. Um, I, w I was really impressed with that <laughs> level of energy output on his part. But that was also 
taking away from his creative energy so that when he got back, even though he, the first thing he did when he got back was shoulder arms, that was, he probably invested everything he had into that. And then he had nothing left afterwards. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think that's um, an important time period that is somewhat overlooked. Maybe. First of all, he has to deal with the publicity fallout of that by, you know, being very visible, you know, serving the public in some fashion, but also, um, you know that that he starts to think about World War One as a as a topic for comedy, which seems a little uh, heretical at the time, I imagine. Although, you know, yes. military <laughs> comedies were yeah. not unknown by any means, but uh... but not when the war's going on. I mean, yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not in it, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, right. it's a little it's a little stressful. You can see that. Um, but it's all leading up to, I mean, you know, the redeeming thing without a doubt of, of his uh, first national period is the kid. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge hit. It's a, it's widely acclaimed. I remember running across some article in Photoplay back in, you know, 21 or whenever that, you know, was talking about people voting on the best films of all time. And frustratingly, they never put the whole list in. But what I, we do know is, I think the top ones were Broken Blossoms, The Miracle Man, and The Kid. Uh, right. So you know, mm-hmm. people people took it seriously, took the idea that Chaplin had taken comedy to this new place, you know, accepted that idea, and that you know he was right. he was once again leading, you know, that genre. And teaming up with Jackie Coogan was uh, one of the most um, happenstance worthy things that he ever did. I mean, it was totally a, a stroke of luck that he saw Jackie and his father performing at the Orpheum in Los Angeles and actually in San Francisco and, um, you know, decided, Hey, I think I'd like, a, a, a child co-star for this film. Um, whether that had anything to do with the death of his son, Norman or not, I'm not sure. He was working with children anyway, worked with children on shoulder arms. He enjoyed working with children. That was, you know, he was good with them. Um, So that may have been in his mind well before he lost his own son. I don't know. Um, But Jackie was just, uh, you have to admit, he's the center of that film in some sense. Sure. Because of his, the way he looks and the way he acts, but more so the relationship between himself and the little tramp which is just golden. I mean, you can't really (laughs) say anything bad about it. The other thing is that Charlie was obviously welling up feelings and experiences from his own childhood, which he hadn't really done before. Um, Maybe to a little extent in things like Easy Street and, and films like that. But this is the first time he just went all out, you know, Um, living in this horrible apartment and, always, you know, being chased by the cops and the people from the orphanage and all that sort of thing. I mean, those are from his own experiences. And I just think that they made all the difference in that film. And I think taking a long time. I mean, when when Charlie became totally independent with the United Artists contract or the United Artists period, um, he was able to take as much time as he wanted. And that's really what he needed for whatever reason, because he liked to take scenes over and over and over again, perhaps, but also just because it gave him the opportunity to call off on a couple of days and think things over, maybe come up with 
um, something that's uh, really um, absolutely marvelous to add to the film or whatever, or to cut something out. Um, you know, so I, I think this is really our first chance of seeing what is possible if Chaplin is given enough time and enough of everything, you know, yeah. to do something that he really yeah. wants to do. Well, you know, I was yeah. thinking of the the famous poster that the movie opened with uh, has the line, this is the great picture upon which the famous comedian has worked a whole year, six reels of joy. <laughs> Which is a right. way of communicating both that, hey, we've been making this a long time. We didn't forget to make Charlie Chaplin movies. You know, this is right. this has been happening. And then also, it's six reels. It's you know, you're not going to see a short. You're going to see a full film. So, at a time when That's people right. would have known what six reels meant, I mean, you know, I don't think you could say that now to people. They'd have any idea, but you know. we but, would. Yeah, you and I would, for sure. <laughs> it just took him into new territory and took the rest of the industry into new territory. I mean, you you soon saw other people going into features. I mean, you know, the one that uh, we'll never know is, how you know, because Roscoe Arbuckle's career ended so quickly after that. I mean, he right. had just gone into and made a few features. But, you know, clearly he was heading in that same direction. I think he he understood what Chaplin understood that, you know, when you're doing anarchic comedy in the middle of a mob, the guy who's kind of quiet and thoughtful is where everybody's eyes go. Because right. he, he's mm-hmm. thinking ahead. He's not just looking for the closest brick to throw. But, you know, the, <laughs> you know I think that, that really is where, where comedy needed to go at that point if it's going to be longer you need to modulate the flow of the plot in different ways and all that stuff so um, that's right yeah. you know a, a big deal this movie uh you know and yes obviously yes, one that ha- you know to this day i mean i kind of think maybe it's his masterpiece i mean everybody you know feels like they need to say gold rush or uh, city lights or city whatever. lights or something yeah, yeah but i, I kind of feel like in many ways his his artistry peaks with the kid in a way that he's still kind of connected to the to the short films as I don't think he is nearly as much in the later ones uh the later right. features yeah so um all right so yeah the kid a big hit and then what else you know the remaining films i guess by this point so what have we had we had shoulder arms and a dog's life and then I don't know what are the what are the early shorts? Is it Payday and the the Idol Rich Idol Class? Yeah, Payday and Idol Class. Idol Class comes uh, actually just I think it's completed just before the kid, um, and, and I think that's a good one actually. Um, it has some really bright moments in it, and then of course the last one, The Pilgrim, which is um, three or four reels long. It's pretty long, like forty five minutes or something. Um, there was a lot. Of, there's a huge brouhaha over that one. <laughs> um, you know, was he going to give it, was he going to give it to his first national? Were they going to pay him enough for it? Or was he going to, um, substitute this thing called the professor that Arnold Lozano from the chaplain office, um, put together according to the notes that were in the archive and discovered it was a sort of a fake chaplain short that was comprised of different pieces from different films that had been cut out of other films like, 
you know, the examination office uh, scene from Shoulder Arms, that's in there, um, and various and sundry other little pieces. I mean, he was going to actually voice that on Diverse National as the eighth film if they didn't give him enough for The Pilgrim. So, hmm. <laughs> and The yeah. Pilgrim, I think, is also very good. It has yeah. some really bright moments in it. So. Yeah, no, I mean, The Professor sort of sounds like, you know, when a sitcom does a, you know, a bottle episode, which is kind of a way of just, you know, we're we're out of time <laughs> and we're out of money, so we need to do a, uh, you know, do a an episode that does not involve hiring any additional talent or building any new sets. You know, you get the characters sitting around the kitchen tables going, remember the time that, and then they cut to footage from an old episode. Um, right. Mm-hmm. The professor sounds a little bit like that. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know what what else. What else did he need to fulfill? So the the pilgrim. Um, so he had uh, after shoulder arms. There was the day's pleasure. There was uh, sunny side, which I think is a very dark film, um, which kind of gives some hints as to his mentality at the time, and then a pay payday, of course, and then the idle class. The Kid, and The Pilgrim. I think that's the eight. Um, so there was also this footage from that we know now as How to Make Movies, which I think a lot of that footage ended up in that um, Frankenstein film that he was trying to pawn off to First National, you know. Um, but, but it was never good for anything until now. I mean, you know. Okay. So, I mean, how were relations with First National at this point, did the kid make everything okay? Or it did for a while until um, the pil- the negotiations for the pilgrims started, um, which were really, really nasty and heated. So, I mean, there's a- all kinds of correspondence in the archive about back and forth between uh, Nathan Birkin, who was Charlie's lawyer, uh, trying to deal with the First National guys in New York. And um, what they would accept for this eighth film, what they wouldn't accept. And they wanted to see some of it first. Chaplin didn't want to show it to them, obviously, because what he wanted to give them was the professor. And he certainly didn't want them to see that when he turned it in. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, so it ended up really badly at the end. And interestingly enough, I think, is when they started working on United Artists and, and Sydney. Um, my guy Sydney was really in on the bottom of that. Um, J.D. Williams, the big guy at First National, actually wrote them a letter, and it's in the archive, suggesting, "Hey, I can do this for you. You know, I can. Let, let's forget about United Artists. I'm going to offer you this deal." And he was addressing this to um, Robert Fairbanks, who is Douglas's brother and business manager, in essence. And expected all of the stars, you know, Pickford, Fairbanks, and um, D.W. Griffith and Charlie to have read it, you know, like right. like they're going to accept any kind of deal with Williams after everything that's happened. Yeah. I mean, it's completely preposterous. But I just thought, wow, what kind of, you know, what kind of cojones do you have to have to, right. to try to voice studio that over chief on the cojones? I think is the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that happened at the end, and I'm, I'm sure once he got no response or very little response, <laughs> yeah. then that was it. <laughs> the silence was the message, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so then 
uh, things wind up with First National, and he proceeds to uh, United Artists, where he also doesn't crank out movies. Um, no. Mm-mm. He's, I don't know, when, when is he officially working for you, you know, or at United Artists? Uh, um, after the wrap-up of The Pilgrim was 1923, so that would have been, you know, the first one was A Woman of Paris, which didn't have him in it, so it wasn't going to, you know, satisfy any of his fans, for sure. Um, so that was a big risk, too, on his part. <laughs> Right, but exactly the sort of thing that he wanted the freedom to be able to do and experiment with. Um, right, exactly. I find it a little hard to watch because it's copied so much or it's so much like other things. But I, I can absolutely see why for him it felt like the stretch he needed to do and feel more capable in the medium of doing things other than you know just hobbling down the street like the tramp with his feet stuck out side to side. Right. So, right. Exactly. You know, I, I he can wanted see to show his breadth. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. And then finally he releases another comedy with the gold rush, but that's not till 1925. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, I don't know how, how do you sum up the first national period? What does it look like to you? Um, I think the First National Period is a necessary step for Chaplin um, to get to the the fine features that he's going to make in the late 20s and 30s and beyond um, because he hadn't really had a misstep yet. He hadn't had that moment in which he couldn't think of an idea or he's got a personal tragedy that's distracting him or whatever. I, I think he had to go through that to come out the other end um, really motivated and able to a create again, but b sidestep those sorts of tragedies. I mean, when when we get to the circus in nineteen twenty seven twenty eight, he's got the you know the whole circus tent goes up in flames, and he's got to start over. Plus, he's got the the Lita Gray divorce. You know, so right. he's got to be able to. He's going to have those little things going on, but. I think the first test happened in the first national period, not just with his personal life, but with the people he was working for and how rigid they were. Um, frankly, they were not uh, film producers. So, you know, we had a, a bunch of theater owners and managers um, trying to dip their foot into the film production business. And there was, there was going to be some problems, you know, if it wasn't Chaplin, it would have been someone else, you know. No, I, I, I think it was a necessary time. Lisa Steinhaven's The Early Years of Charlie Chaplin, Final Shorts and First Features, is out now from White Owl Books. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Under the special feature of our program, the appearance of our mystery celebrity, for which my friends are blindfolded. The blindfolds are all in place, panel? They are. Good. Will you come in, mystery challenger, and sign in, please? (laughs) 
Could we have seen you on television earlier today? That was yes. Mm-hmm. That Ms. was Francis? yes before. I still don't understand the answer. Only now it's not a ball player. I don't think. Uh, are you here in New York just for the World Series? No. Two thousand eight to go, Mr. Sir. Have you, uh, have you a husband who is possibly just as well-known as you are? Yeah. Go five down and five to go, Miss Kilgallen. Are you the voluptuous blonde type? I don't think so. <laughs> Go, Mr. Lewis. If Both I... of them. <laughs> That's what made it she so much fun. Swedish one, and I was there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you see, Swedish. 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 <laughs> well, you had some kind of an accent, didn't you? Yeah. What? Swedish. 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 That was mystery guests Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz on a 1955 episode of What's My Line? Which movie stars rose to the highest heights after their studio-era careers? Ronald Reagan went on to have some success in politics. TV exposure gave undying fame to a middling star like Bela Lugosi. But only one second-rank star did so well on TV that she wound up owning her old studio, Lucille Ball, who turned the RKO lot into Desilu. Sarah Royal, a pop culture historian who co-hosts the podcast Enough Wicker, intellectualizing the Golden Girls, tells the story of Lucy's improbable and iconic success in A.K.A. Lucy, The Dynamic and Determined Life of Lucille Ball, from Running Press. I spoke with her from her home in Brooklyn. You do a podcast about a relatively recent uh, sitcom. Yes. Uh, I always forget the first word. Something wicker. Enough wicker. Enough wicker. I was going enduring wicker, exploring wicker. No. Um, exploring right. wicker is kind of a great name for that a podcast a about the Golden Girls. Yeah. Um, all right. So enough wicker, intellectualizing the Golden Girls. But you reached even di deeper into uh, sitcom history for this. Why did you want to write about Lucy? Well, because, I mean, like, let's let's talk about even just the Golden Girls and I Love Lucy in particular, both two fascinating shows that are domestically driven comedies uh, centered around women and their desires. And uh, I think that they're both shows that have continued to gain an incredible fan base long, long, long after they have officially gone off the air, you know, especially through reruns. And of course the Lucy and uh, you know, her, her uh, husband at the time, Desi Arnaz are responsible for the rerun. So I think tracing sort of television and sitcom history back to I love Lucy, just that show alone is fascinating enough, but digging into Lucille ball as a person who is this completely outsized superstar, a woman who, you know, only is known by her first name to us. If you say yeah. Lucy, people know who you're talking about. Um, but she was such a fascinating human being. She has such a relatable personal story, I think, and um, was just had a lot of characteristics that are kind of like, you know, relatively like unknown to a lot of people. So I thought it was about time to sort of bring her back, you know, you know, into 
the modern era. And of course, she's, I mean, she's being looked at again, um, you know, several years after her death by, you know, Amy Poehler's uh, documentary, Lucy and Desi, or Being the Ricardos, you know, Aaron Sorkin's film. So there's um, there's a lot going on these days to uh, to bring Lucy back. It's interesting you mentioned how ubiquitous she is as a figure. I mean, you know, I remember her first just from, uh, it must have been Here's Lucy being on TV. Yeah. You know, so she's she's so deep in my subconscious that it's <laughs> it's hard to see her in in dramatic films from the 40s, like Lourdes or The Big Street or something. Yeah. Because that's Lucy. That's not an actress. That's Lucy. <laughs> it's like seeing Abraham Lincoln in a movie. You know, you... <laughs> You know that face so well that it's it's hard to get a you know separate from what you know her to be. So yes, exactly. I mean, and that's I mean, you know, I'm I'm, a, I'm sure we're going to dig even deeper into her movie career, but I think that um, you know people are really surprised to hear, especially people who just you know like might know Lucy. Oh, she's that redhead, or she's the redhead from I Love Lucy, right? Like those those are kind of like the two. Um, you know, hallmarks for for people like my husband, who I always joke are, are like so removed from pop culture and don't don't have those things that like plug into their brains, right? Um, but like to know that she had a movie career, you know, it is fascinating. And to your point, that she did these serious films, and uh, you know, it's she has incredible range. But when you know her as the icon that she is today, it's it's almost comical. Yeah, I mean, there's a good quote that you have in the book from. Uh a writer named David Callot. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but anyway, he yeah, says Callot or Callot. Yeah. yeah, that her career went from uh, being wasted in supporting roles to being wasted in starring roles. And <laughs> I, I just watched Dewberry Was a Lady uh, yeah. the other night, and I mean that's that's the example. I mean, she loved how glamorous it made her, but yeah. she's really not used very much in the movie. Everybody right. talks about Madame Dewberry or about her nightclub star character but it's not really that much of a part um so yeah i mean it it is interesting she i mean you couldn't really call her her film career a total success compared to certainly what her tv career was Um, so let's go all right i'm i'm jumping into the middle here let's go back in time (laughs) uh she had you know kind of a future movie star hardship uh, growing up, um, her family, you know, at one point was relatively well off, and then there was a horrible accident. Um, right. That, yeah, tell me about, uh, you know, her early years that convinced her that she had to support her family and all that. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I mean, rel- relatively well off is possibly a stretch. I think because of the the hard working, you know, um, Lucy's mother, Dee Dee, and uh, you know, various the grandparents and aunts, etc., um, contributing to the family and and largely leaving, you know, Lucy and her brother and her cousin kind of on her, on their own to also do hard work and also take care of the house at the same time. I think it's a lot um it's a lot of um you know, energy that was put into being well off. Lucy's father also passed away when she was three years old. So uh, there's a lot of sort of early tragedy in her life. But yeah, there was um, uh, unfortunately an an accidental um, uh, maiming gunshot uh, from a neighboring child uh, in Lucy's backyard. And that was sort of this tumultuous event that got her grandfather, you know, of course, in trouble and held accountable and lost money. And and there was sort of split up the family in a way that 
you know, they all felt like they were finally unified together after her mother had traveled to do work and Lucy was sort of passed around to various grandparents and relatives. And, you know, I think from that moment of she saw, she was old enough to see how much it hurt her family and particularly her grandfather that she just wanted to do anything in her power at that time to bring them back together, meaning like bring them back together in physically the same location under a house, but also bring them back together in a way that would ease their financial woes and wouldn't have to um, put so much pressure on them to sort of, you know, survive again. So the way she knew how to do it was, you know, she wanted to be a performer. She was, you know, playing sort of bit roles and things in uh, and around Jamestown, New York, where she was from, but uh, traveling back and forth to New York City, which, by the way, is not close to Jamestown, <laughs> considering um, how young she was and how she would travel often by herself. Uh, and she basically had it in her head that, you know, whatever success she had was always going to go back and support her family, which I, th- I think is interesting because there's so many um, stars and so many stars stories, particularly this era that you hear, you know, oh, they came from hardship and, you know, there was a, something happened with their family, et cetera, et cetera. And they essentially ran away from their hometown, right? Lucy, yeah, she ran away from their hometown for opportunity. But then as we see later, when she gets to Los Angeles, she literally sends for her family members one by one. And sure enough, she accomplishes her goal of, Hey, we all live in the same place and I am the breadwinner. I'm taking care of you all. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it certainly you get all types, but uh, it reminded me of people like Mary Pickford, who also were sort of, yeah. you know, supported their families from an early age. Um, yeah, it's interesting. She goes, you know, she winds up in Hollywood and she's going to a fancy, uh, or I'm sorry, she winds up in New York and she's going to a fancy yeah. uh, um, acting school run by John Murray Anderson, who Nitrieville listeners will know as the director of King of Jazz. There you go. And uh, then she gets tossed out of it because they just don't think she has it. Yeah, they sort of made fun of her regional accent. <laughs> yeah. Plus, plus, she was very shy. You know, she really didn't know. It was a lot of pressure at that school, as you can imagine, right? This is like the be-all, end-all, uh, you know, uptown New York. And, um, you know, classmates that were there, like Betty Davis. I mean, there's, there's a lot of competition. So she sort of clammed up. She didn't really know how to be that standout person. So they basically wrote a letter to her mom and said, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, being in class with Betty Davis would probably intimidate anybody. (laughs) Yeah, I would think so. (laughs) But, uh, all right, so then she takes another try at it, and I was kind of surprised. I mean, someone is a hero in this who I never particularly thought well of. I mean, you always hear bad things about Leela Rogers, who's Ginger Rogers' mother and, you know, supposed to have inspired Ida Lupino in the hard way and things like that. Mm -hmm. Usually talked about as sort of a scary stage mother, but she really takes (laughs) Lucy under her wing, helps educate her. I mean, it's kind of weird. You wonder, you know, when they're both working on stage door, uh, but Ginger is much more the star with Catherine Hepburn. Is is there some sibling rivalry that occasionally <laughs> pops up on the set? Who knows? But she really takes, you know, takes to being a surrogate daughter for Leela Rogers, who kind of trains her and and I guess had an had sort of a, a little theater on the RKO lot, yeah, where she trained, you know, young performers. So, 
Yeah, I think I think what's interesting about Leela Rogers is like, yeah, I mean, I think part of the appeal for Lucy was the quote unquote scary stage mom persona because she was a very powerful woman between behind the scenes, right? And she could be somebody who could, you know, for lack of a better term, like push people around. And I think Lucy was very attracted to people who got things done and who held their own, and a, particularly a woman in that role, right? So I think. You know, Leela Rogers clearly is a mover and shaker when Lucy shows up and Lucy essentially connects with her in the way that says, like, can you make me a star? You know, like, how, you got to teach me the ropes. Like, she's like, I can I can pick up on the performance pieces myself. But part of what Lucy loved about, um, you know, RKO and just sort of that that stage studio system, you know, where they create stars for lack of a better phrase um that she you know she really wanted to absorb everything she wanted to be a crazy sponge and leela can help do that for her which is pretty interesting yeah so i mean how do you feel about her films at rko i don't know how many you've seen but i mean she's she just kind of seems to be she she moves up but she's kind of just taking off time while she's there it feels like (laughs) yeah i think that there's you know there's also part of those are the early days where she just is volunteering for anything sounds great you know like that that was part of what actually got her to sort of move along so fast in movies you know there was uh a year where she did eight films in one year i mean that's that's insane right and you talk about you know ginger rogers and, and you know fred astaire would do like no more than one or two a year. And at this time, Lucy's like, yeah, put me in coach. You know, I mean, she famously years later was watching a film uh, Broadway through a keyhole and was like, wait, I'm in this. (laughs) Yeah, really? (laughs) She (laughs) forgot, you know? So I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely like, you can see sort of the growing pains from the Lucy performance side, but at the same time, you know, that they, you know, they weren't, they couldn't figure her out yet. They didn't really know where she fit. And I think, as, you know, as with the Leela Rogers story, I, I talk about a lot in the book, like there's a, a couple of occasions where, you know, the studio heads are like, nah, I, I don't think she's good for this. And Leela actually fought for her. She said, you know, like at one, at one point she even said, uh, Ginger Rogers actually mentions this in her autobiography that, you know, Leela basically threatens to leave if if they get rid of Lucy, huh. which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Right, which, I mean, again, suggests that she really took to her in a mother-daughter sort of way. Mother-daughter, and also she could see... I think what's interesting is that she saw the comedic potential in Lucy. I think, you know, RKO, et cetera, all the, you know, the studio heads, you know, they, they were, you know, typical, typical straight men in power. And they said, yeah, she's pretty face, you know, like, that yeah. sounds great. You can make her a star. Like, she's good. You know, her, her breasts aren't as big as we need them to be, blah, blah, right. blah. Like, you know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of nonsense. Yeah. But you know, a woman can be funny. And if a woman is funny, guess what? She's not pretty. Like, that's impossible, right? So there was a lot of that working against her. Leela being a woman, uh, not clouded by such judgments, um, saw, you know, Lucy, basically how, how animated she was when she told stories. She saw her, you know, almost elastic face and that that potential to, you know, have her have her have humorous roles as well of course she didn't quite get there right away because of aforementioned studio heads but i think that was an interesting quality too that that is not talked about as much yeah no i mean that's what i was thinking watching dewberry was a lady it was just like yeah. watching the opportunities for her to to have as much comic activity as red skelton in the movie yes. just being thrown away 
Yeah. I mean, she's exactly. just there to have blazing red hair and technicolor. And, you know, and there's a, there's a much better movie in my head where, you know, she, <laughs> she and Gene Kelly, you know, have several scenes together and they're a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, they, they couldn't seem to get what she was and nobody did until TV audiences did really. Exactly. And I, I think that's, what's so funny is that, um, what you just said right there was, What's really fascinating to me is that a lot of critics said that too. Like, especially later in her movie career, you know, MGM uh, films after DuBerry, like they basically were like, she deserves more. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of quotes where the critics are actually saying like, what are you guys doing? You know, um, like Variety once said, uh, one of the quotes is like, you know, her starring role while expertly done. This is a, when uh, the film Easy Living. Uh, it doesn't realize on the possibilities of her name and talent, you know, and it's and it's so interesting. New York Daily News was basically like, put her in something more deserving. I mean, there's so much sort of clamoring, which is really fascinating because, you know, you think about other instances where maybe an audience connected with an actor or actress, but the critics were kind of met on it. And you'd think that the studios would really be listening to that. But I think they they were so blinded by their own sort of typecasting of Lucy uh, as that other woman and not like the star star, um, that they just, they just never got there. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I mean, her persona, even if they didn't want her playing comedy, there's something, I don't know, it's a little hat check girly and, and, <laughs> uh, you know, a little common, which is not a bad thing in the movies. I mean, Joan Crawford certainly made a fortune yeah. off it. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, maybe our moving to MGM was a bad idea after all. Um, you know, because they just they just had her as a clothes horse and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's like it's right in front of you guys, and you're not seeing it. <laughs> the 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 uh, quote from um, Sidney uh, Guilaruf, I, I forget how you pronounce his name, but that he's the, he's of course the the famous um, hairdresser who dyed her hair red for Dubarry was a lady. He you know basically said that she uh wasn't classy enough he, he told robert osborne that um uh, that she wasn't classy enough for mgm and mgm and i think you're right about that sort of the hat check girl she's sort of like that bit player she does have a little sass to her part of that also goes back to that you know the reason she sort of quote unquote got kicked out of uh acting school like she didn't have the accent she didn't have that you know that mid-atlantic Catherine hepburn like right. air about her and you know she even said you know lucy herself said like you know they would she'd be palling it up with everybody in a room you know they'd be lighting her cigarettes and then you know maureen o'hara would walk in and all of a sudden all the men in the room who were just sort of palling around with her would treat her like a lady right would treat her like a star and i think that Lucy understood that she was sort of, you know, for better or for worse, like put into that almost every woman persona where movie stardom can't deliver that level of sort of, I mean, it has to deliver that level of elevation, but not for someone like her. Whereas the small screen can. Yeah. It's like they want her to be Hetty Lamar or something. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, already, you already have a Hetty Lamar. Exactly. Know? What exactly. you've got here is another Carol Lombard and you won't, take advantage of it. it seems exactly. Exactly. All right. So meantime, something momentous in her life. She marries a Cuban band leader. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Tell it's funny when that. you talk about they already, you said, you know, they already had a Hedy Lamar. I think that uh, I, that was what I thought was when Desi went back to the studios and they said, we already have a Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, only room for one. Um, but yes, but she she marries uh, Desi Arnaz to uh, not not necessarily the surprise of everyone, but surprising everyone for how long the marriage lasts. Yeah, because he's doing everything he can to mess it up through most <laughs> of it. Um, but I don't know what do you, on the positive side. What do you think she got out of being married to him besides just being in love? Oh, I mean the you know she would not she would not be the star that she was if not for Desi at every step of the way. I firmly believe that because not only the boost of confidence that he gave her in terms of encouraging her to you know, go out on limb, like to go, to go freelance in the movies, to, you know, create her own, to move to radio, to create her own vaudeville tour with him. Right. I think there is this push and pull where she is also working as hard as she can to be able to work with Desi, not because he's an amazing talent and so clever, especially behind the scenes, but because she literally wants to physically be in the same place with them. And as I, <laughs> with him, and as I mentioned, you know, the, the studios don't want him because they don't have any need for any more than one Hispanic actor. Um, you know, he can't get rid of his accent. <laughs> it's not working for them. And the only other option he has to make money is to go out on tour with his band. So, of course, you know, there are physical dalliances, shall we say, outside of the relationship. He's still committed to her, as as a wife, as as his family, but you know, she wants to settle down and have kids, and he needs to be in the same room for that to happen. Right. So I think she got she got so much out of it once they started working together because he also knew how to have her be her best self, performance wise and personally. And it's his idea that, you know, especially when seeing when she was on her radio show where she was playing off of a live audience in the studio. It was his idea for the I Love Lucy project to have a live audience while they were filming it. It was his idea to film it, for goodness sakes. I mean, there's so much of what, you know, like Lucy became in terms of bringing that character out of her, but also preserving her for posterity and guiding her to make her the biggest star in the world. Right, but there are other shows of that time that survive, and it's not like everybody's sitting around watching The Real McCoy these days or anything like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, you know, the I Love Lucy really has a has a unique place. I mean, there's and there's other things. I mean, like Milton Berle. We all heard that Milton Berle was big on television, but we've never seen that. I mean, <laughs> right. it's you know, the, if the if clips survive, they're never anywhere. Um, so she she created a persona and the two of them in their relationship that really had staying power, obviously. Um, yeah. You know, and wor- it worked for the rest of her life almost, um, you know, or at least as far, far as it could in terms of advancing age. I mean, what do you think <laughs> is so different, you know, versus like the June Cleavers and Donna Reeds and other, you know, oh, yes. the housewives in, in flowing skirts who, you know, are so, <laughs> so typical of that time? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I love that you said Donna Reed because like, if if you th- if think of the first word that comes to mind when you're thinking about the longevity of that character versus a Lucy Ricardo is that Donna Reed's boring. Yeah, <laughs> you know, she's she's boring. She's saintly. She's not 
relatable in this way. And, you know, I mean, now with our modern perspective, it's almost Stepford wifey, right? Like it's yeah. very, very, um, you know, not long lasting. And I think the Lucy Ricardo performance, as well as just the entire conceit of the show is that her whole yearning was to for more. Uh, yes, I'm a housewife. I'm a dedicated wife. I love my husband. This is my domestic space. I want to be in the show. I want to do more. I want to be a star. I want to see what else is sort of beyond my door. So it was aspirational in this way, even if, you know, you were a person watching who either wasn't a housewife or didn't want to be on the screen. It's still um, a character that is driven by desire. And I think that there's there's so much in that that's just metaphorical, but also just relatable. It was like they had this apartment. A lot of people lived in apartments or lived yeah. in houses. There was a lot of domestic comedy and, you know, storylines about like, we have to budget or, you know, what are we going to do about the neighbors? Or there's this weird social gaffe that I just made. There's a lot of things in there that people can relate to. And she made it hilarious. Like she, yeah. it's really, really funny in like, great writing in terms of scripting and dialogue, but obviously her comedic pratfalls and the slapstick element of the show is really good. And again, giving credit to Desi, he wanted to make sure that one, they weren't being offensive um, to various groups and, and such as at least at the, by the standards of the time um, and that they weren't doing anything that really was going to be dating them. You know, they didn't want to do like hyper, um, you know, timely storylines where that couldn't be evergreen moving forward. So I think by it's like some of those guidelines were really important to them and they, they designed it on purpose. And yeah, I mean that, you know, just <laughs> Lucy is a fascinating character because even if she always sort of comes back around into that domestic space, you know, that there's going to be some other scheme in her head, the next episode that uh, is going to take, you know, everyone on a different adventure. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, she really was the the woman that, women who had been in the workplace, I mean, you point out that actually women were still in the workplace quite a bit in the 50s, yes. despite yes. the historical record that they all got fired on, you know, VJ Day. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but the, uh, you know, just that women had, had kind of seen a bigger world, you know, they weren't out on the farm scrubbing on a washboard or anything like that. And she represents that sort of pull between domesticity and wanting a career of your own. Um, and then the other thing I think that that is just becomes clear at that time. I mean, you know, you talk about her kind of being influenced by and knowing Buster Keaton. I mean, I've always thought there's a yeah. lot of Harpo Marx in her performances, not least when she's actually on screen with Harpo she's Marx. With yeah. <laughs> but uh, some, I mean, she's got this kind of brash quality that just can't help but remind me of the way Harpo acts. She's more connected to everyday reality than he is, obviously. But But there's something of that there. And she has, you know, as we've just talked about her movie career, and she has so much experience under her belt, right, for for pulling, you know, not only pulling from Keaton, pulling from the Marx Brothers, which she was in a short with them, um, pulling from, you know, various folks that she's seen acting on set, pulling from her modeling career of how to hold yourself, pulling from, you know, the radio career of how to, you know, bounce off of a live audience and just the work ethic going all the way back to her, the earliest days of her family of just like, if you're going to do something, you're going to do it well, you know? And I think that she really 
exemplifies that. So it's sort of all culminated in this television experience, which is so fascinating because it was just such an experiment that she and Desi were like, ah, oh, you know, we'll do a season and it'll be fun. It'll be canceled. And we can, you know, show the old movies to our children. Right. They yeah. had no <laughs> idea what was in store for them. <laughs> yeah. And so she did, she did one of the most famous things on TV ever, um, short of landing on the moon, which was that she, <laughs> uh, you know, she had a baby on television. Oh yes. When oh my gosh. That was a shocking secret. Not sure how they thought the species reproduced, but um <laughs> Which yeah. is amazing because if you actually watch that episode, she just walks behind a door in the lobby of the hospital. That's as far as we get. Right. And then all of a sudden there's a baby at the other end. <laughs> yeah, no, it always amazes me when you see thirties movies where someone's supposed to be about to have a child. Yes. And they're as scrawny as they ever were. You know, yeah, they've exactly. still got their model exactly. figure. <laughs> Have you never seen a pregnant woman? Do they not go to the grocery store? Yeah. You know. But anyway, yeah. So she, I mean, a huge thing. Uh, it lasts about as long as their marriage continues to last. Uh, although they proved to be good business partners for some years after, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, they, they get divorced. Um, then she has two more series. Um, which I don't really know the history that much. There's the Lucy show and then here's Lucy. Yeah. Kind of the same thing to me. Cause you always have uh, Miss Carmichael, you know, there's another early childhood memory. <laughs> it's just Gail, Gail, Gail Gordon. Gordon. Yeah. yeah. As TV stars tended to do then. I mean, she's got a long time on TV to follow. Yeah. She also managed, I mean, although she makes a lot of movies that are not really terribly good today or, you know, not that anyone particularly needs to see a 60s Bob Hope movie. But, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, I mean, there's one that's really quite good, which is Yours, Mine, and Ours. I mean, it really yes. has, you know, it's kind of a sitcom on film, but it, it has a, you know, a sweet feeling to it and some level of reality. So, you know, I'll, a long career from her TV hit, which is not always true of people with TV hits. So, Exactly. And each time, I mean, it's, it is interesting that it almost can mark each of the decades, right? I Love Lucy's the 50s, Lucy shows the 60s, here's Lucy pulls into the 70s, and it's sort of like taking steps to be in line with sort of how the world is changing in each one. You know, her famously, you know, having um, Vivian Vance play a divorcee and, uh, you know, here's Lucy having like dealing with, you know, oh, these these teenagers, you know, her real life children and just sort of like everything that the 60s and 70s brings in terms of boys with long hair and, you know, all yeah. sorts of troubles. Um, but I think each time it was interesting because she, you know, she, after I Love Lucy, she's like, and, you know, after Lucy Desi comedy hour, et cetera, and, you know, there she's like, I'm not going to do anything else. And of course, you know, she was asked to come back and there were favorable terms that she could control. And she said, yes. And same thing for here's Lucy, like, okay, but you know, I want my kids to be on it and the kids were on it. And she said, yes. So there was so much about her that just wanted to work. She just wanted to do work and it could not imagine herself not being a performer. So I think that that's, what's really, it's almost, it's not quite accidental that we just, she just continues on. Of course, like the world loved her and, you know, the producers loved her and they said, this is going to, you know, be successful. So let's keep going. And she just kept going. And then, you know, at one point, here's Lucy couldn't even come up for reruns because 
she was already basically booked with, with I Love Lucy reruns and the Lucy Show reruns, you know. Right. She was perpetually on television. In the streaming day, she could have just had her own channel, yeah. Yeah, uh, right? Exactly, yeah. Sort of like the, you know, the New York Yankees network. It's just the Lucille Ball <laughs> network, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I guarantee that would be that, would be that additional nine ninety nine that everybody had to spend a month, right? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I mean, but at a certain point, I mean, she is one of those stars who kind of hung on too long because she didn't have anything else to do, you know? She didn't know how to live without an audience in front of her, it feels like. Yeah, and I think that that's that's pretty clear with, you know, when you think about life with Lucy, you know, her last um, sitcom, which, you know, was, was actually canceled after three months. So, you know, that was uh, that was actually an Aaron Spelling project and... You know, she sort of was just like, again, kept going, right? Kept saying, yes, this is an opportunity. And she really wanted to work. And she was actually pretty hurt by the fact that it wasn't well received because people were saying exactly that of just like, why don't you just chill and enjoy your money? <laughs> like, right, yeah. You know, and, and they were they were questioning why she kept at it. And I think this is really interesting because I as a non-actor layperson would also say the same thing, right? Okay. You do a couple of your projects, you get mega millions and then you sit around and you hang out with your kids and you lounge around, have people serve you caviar all day, you know, whatever, <laughs> right. whatever. chase the pool boy, whatever yes, it takes. Exactly. Right. Whatever, whatever it takes. You got a gorgeous place in LA, you have multiple vacation homes, whatever. And you know, that's sort of the fantasy in my mind, right. Of like you do your great project and you're done, but that's not, in reality, how a lot of creative people operate, and particularly a creative person who is, you know, basically addicted to work, like Lucille Ball. So she, you know, was basically like, "You okay? You you can love it or you hate it, whatever my new project is, but please don't criticize me for going back to work and wanting to make more art." <laughs> you know, and I think that that's a fair, you know, that's sort of a fair assessment of of some of the critics at the time. You know, basically a lot a lot wrapped up in misogyny too right of just like yeah. you're old and there's no space for you here and she was like you know forget you like i <laughs> just give me a break you can you can criticize the actual art quality but don't criticize me for coming back yeah, it's, I know. It's like, you know, J hey, John Wayne's fat and bald. What's your problem? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's your problem? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and I think it's interesting because, I mean, look at people like Dick Van Dyke, right? Like he's yeah. uh, approximately 180 right now and he's still <laughs> yeah. making these pop-up appearances. And I think it's great, right? It's like he he gets joy of performing. And that's exactly what Lucy did. You know, she she kept at it to the end and wanted to make sure that Yes, she had a legacy, but she didn't think of it as like anything I do now will quote unquote ruin that legacy. And honestly, nothing could. She had a canceled TV show. She had a not very well received final movie in Maine. And yet, you know, she was still the biggest star. People, you know, venerate her from when she was still living all the way through today. Carolyn Appleby was played by Dora Singleton and Harpo Marx portrayed himself. is the Desilu production. Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz will be back next week at this same time. 
Sarah Royals, a.k.a. Lucy, The Dynamic and Determined Life of Lucille Ball, comes out October 10th from Running Press. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Johnny Best, Lisa Steinhaven, and Sarah Royal, and to Cita Zinc at Running Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Oh, Ricky.